Okay, good morning. I think if we were to sing those three songs over again, I wouldn't have to preach. It's, it's amazing. And including the last song we're going to sing, uh, I feel redundant, and that's okay. You know, it's a real privilege and a joy and a wee bit of a terror sharing the Word of God with you this morning. I thank God for giving me the opportunity. I thank Pastor for giving me the opportunity. Really makes you appreciate how hard the pastors work to prepare a sermon. It is a lot of work. It is a lot of joy. The song we just sang says, I know how the story ends. And how many times have you heard that said? Ah, we know how the story ends. We've said it ourselves, probably. Might even have believed it when we said it. You know, we think of these things when the godlessness and the evil of the world just seems to surround us. You know, when there's tragedy that strikes. And it always reminds us of the end, of end time passages, like we see in Matthew 24 and in Revelation and Thessalonians and 2 Peter and all the prophets. We think of the second coming of Christ when we say, ah, I know the end of the story. And it relates to that. Coming of new heavens and new earth the new Jerusalem that we'll talk about today. Psalm 46 gives a sense of what has happened in the past, what is happening in the present, but what will happen in the future while encouraging us in the present. It is one of the best-known psalms of... Uh, I forgot to turn my thing on. See, that's how, we said, that's how we started. We know the end of the story. That's the end of that one. Okay. It is one of the best-known songs of a love and written by the sons of Korah. I wish I had time to tell you the story of the sons of Korah. It is amazing on how they got to where they are from where Korah started. But there seems to be a wonderful flow to the Psalms that they have written, starting with John when he spoke last week of Psalms 42 and 43. And we saw the lamentation of, where is my God and why is my soul cast down? And then we go to Psalm 44, where they continue to seek God's help. And then the Psalm 45, I think they found his help because there's a royal wedding there. And the king has, a, it's a love song. The king takes himself a bride. And I was thinking God and the bride of Israel and Christ and, and the bride of the body. Psalm 46 extends that, uh, that praise, exalts his protection in all storms of life with great last days references in this then Psalm 47 really seems like a praise and worship song based on the context of Psalm 46. Then Psalm 48 continues that praise and worship with a little more detailed description of God's reign in the city of God, while Mount Zion is a fortress. To me, Psalm 46 through 48 are just be read together in sequence. It is just a wonderful, wonderful story. The Psalm 46 is a Zion psalm. It is celebrating Zion, or Jerusalem, as a special city to which God has pledged himself throughout eternity, and he will bless the world through this, through this city. Zion originally referred to a mountain that King David conquered from the Jebusites, but it's also often referred to the temple, or Jerusalem itself, and certainly to the, the promised land. The people sing, when they think, sing to Zion, they sing of... A, a, of the protection to be found, the uh, security to be found at Zion and Jerusalem. And why? Because of the presence of God is there. God is uh, praised for delivering Israel in Psalm 46. The psalmist praises what he did, who he is, and what he will do. 
Some of the imagery is, uh, again, suggests what is to come in the last days, but it assures us, assures God's people, that no matter what may befall us, he will protect us and provide for us, both now and for eternity. Now, the psalm's divided into three sections, ending in the word sailor. Now, sailor is one of those words that no one really knows what it means. They can kind of guess. It's 74 times it's used in the Bible. And some of the suggestions are musical interlude, stop and listen, pause, lift up and exalt. And I tend to think it's kind of fit, the definition is in the context of the passage that is completed. And I think we'll see that a little bit as we go through this. But I, we have verses one to three, and I titled my first part, uh, A Very Present Help, for obvious reasons. And verses four to seven will be, There is a river, and verses eight to 11, Behold his works. And what we'll see is that God is a refuge and strength during natural calamities. He is a fortress for us in man-made calamities, and he will be victorious and exalted forever. Now there's some great poetic imagery in Psalm 46. Uh, if you like seeing mountains plunged into the sea, into the very middle of it, the earth is going to melt. Uh, bows break, sheer, spears, I, I said that when I was reading it over, shears spatter, but it's spears shatter. There's repeated verbs. The mountains are moved, but Jerusalem shall not be moved. And then we see that the kingdoms totter in verse 6, and it's the same verb used each time. Totter shall not be moved and moved. And just like when the waters roar in verse 3, so the nations will rage in verse 6. Again, the same word is, in the original is used. But most importantly is that throughout the psalm, we see the footprints of Jesus. Simply the plan of the Bible the story is God's plan of salvation for us in Jesus Christ. No less so in Psalms. As we see the longing for Christ to come, and from our perspective, for the second coming of Christ. And he's going to reign, and he's going to reign forever. So that's where we are. Summing up the message, can't do it any better than what Martin Luther said. A mighty fortress is our God. He wrote the song, we're going to sing it at the end. I hope, if I leave you enough time, I expect I might. But he says, we sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh and sin. This is a psalm of abiding. It's resting in God no matter what is raging outside or inside, for that matter. So I'm going to open in prayer, and then we'll take a look at this really wonderful psalm that's just so full that I can't even begin to touch what this psalm says today. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day that you've given us. I pray for certainly your presence today as we know you are here. I pray that we are very much aware of it, Father, that we can give glory to all, give glory to you, Father. I pray that everything that is seen and said and heard today brings glory to you. And that as we go out, that we would continue to hear your word, Father, and begin to proclaim it to those that are around us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. 
Well, we have to look at the words refuge and strength. Generally, when you think of a refuge, depending on your social de development, you may think of a cave, or you may think of a luxurious mansion. I, I tend to think of medieval castles, because I happen to like the Middle Ages. But it's a place where people feel safe from the things of the world or from combat. But what's really significant in this psalm is that our refuge and strength is not a place. Here, it is found in a person, namely the God of Jacob. Finding refuge and strength in God is a common theme in Scripture, in scripture as you know. And as you've seen that in some of the psalms that we've read uh, and seen preached so far this summer, there's about 40 refuge references just in psalms alone. And I'm going to give you just one example because I happen to like it. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. We sing the same thing about Jesus when you think about it. He presides over his people. He provides us with our ultimate refuge. We run to and we abide in Christ, our rock, our salvation. And we could actually pray Psalm it was what, Psalm 2, right? Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 18, as a prayer to our Lord. But we also have to look. Oh, and uh, Acts 4 tells us, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given unto men than by which we must be saved. Again, a continuation that we see him as our refuge and our strength. He is a very present help. Now think about those two words, very and present. Okay. Y'all are present today. I can see you. You can't deny it. You can't hide. Okay, you're present. But are you very present? There's a distinct difference. Are you aware, attentive, committed, involved, engaged even to what I'm saying? Whether, not me, but to what I'm saying. Are you engaged to these things? Now I normally sit where you are and I'm normally listening to and receiving far superior preaching than what you're receiving today. But I struggle to maintain my focus sometimes. God isn't like that. He has no focus issues, no attention deficit with God. He is aware. He is a very present. All the time, he is with us. Literally, the verse speaks to help that is easily found. You don't have to go searching high and low for God. Okay, we think we have to. High for God? No. He's in the seat next to you. Even if it's empty, he's next to you. He's always right at hand, ready to help whenever and wherever we need his assistance. It's a help that's been found reliable in the past. It's a stronghold in the past, so that in any future calamity, we have no reason to fear, because we know that. And if you can't remember times that God has done that, think back. Run your checklist. How has God blessed me in the past? And here, this present help is very. I like what they say in Deuteronomy. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the God, Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And Psalm 121 says, I will lift my eyes up to the hill from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Jesus prays in John 17 for the disciples and those who would come after them. That, that would be us. Okay. He prays that we would be kept and protected from the evil one even while remaining in this world. 
Jesus' prayer is a refuge. It is a fortress to us. Since he is both God and man, we can confidently draw to the throne, go, draw to the throne of grace, knowing that we can receive mercy in a time of need. He is there for us all the time. Now, with God's own Son as our intercessor, obviously, how could it be another way? Divine help is clearly at hand. And because of that, therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. Excuse me, this is dry and thirsty work. Now these verses describe some very extreme events, not unlike the things that are prophesied concerning the last days. Yet, if and when these things occur, because God is our refuge and strength and very present help, we declare, it's a declaration, therefore we shall not fear. And this confidence comes from the understanding that God is sovereign. Nothing happens by chance. We don't, might not like to admit it, but nothing happens by chance. We often can't understand what God is doing, as the song said. When we can't answer why, we can certainly remember who. We can place full trust in the sovereign God who always is in control of all things. And one of my favorite, the thing I cling to is that God always does right. I cling to that day in and day out. Jesus warned us that we would face troubles in the world, but not to fear. For he's overcome the world and all of his troubles. He's already won the battle. Which leads me to a question. For the saved, do you sometimes resist the simple gospel? You try to improve on it with your own efforts. Do you see yourself, or perhaps your spouse, as your own refuge and strength? And if so, you may find it, hard to dif- find it difficult to see and accept God's very present help in troubled times when you need it, because it won't be an inclination for you to go there. For the unsaved, can you really claim God as your refuge and strength, or very present help in trouble? I'm not going to answer that for you. It's a rhetorical question. But can you really? And then we come to Selah. I find it this time, it's a transition to the next section, as much as it is, and then to the first section. Because we've had these natural calamities. You know, the mountains are being tossed in the middle of the sea. The waters are roaring. The mountains are trembling at its swelling. And you're just kind of like, it's a crescendo of bad stuff happening, and you need to catch your breath. And that's the context that I see sailor in this time. And we're preparing to shift now from these huge calamities that are happening to a river that makes glad the city of God. And the illustration that I could think of that, it was kind of like Jesus stepping into the boat and what happens to the roaring scenes. Selah, they come. Or Jesus rebuking the winds and the foaming sea. Selah, calms. Pause. Take a breath. Listen as I begin the second section. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Our attention is shifting from the roaring and raging seas to the quiet waters of a river and its streams. Now, there's deep irony in water. 
If you don't believe it, ask a farmer. There's too much or there's too little. And when there's just the right amount of water, then he feels stressed and hurried and, and harassed to get as much done as possible before there's too much water or too little water. It seems like it's always that way. But water is an important substance and symbol in the Bible. People tend to build their cities, as we all know, by rivers or other large sources of fresh water because it's just a need of ours. But water, again, too much and too fast, when it rises and rages, as in verse 3, can cause great destruction, even death. Think Vermont last month. And I won't ask you to raise your hands, but do you remember 1972 and uh, Hurricane Agnes and the floods in PA? Okay. I was not here. I don't remember them. But that was the year I graduated high school. <laughs> Throughout the Psalms, water is often a symbol or metaphor or instrument of trouble and judgment symbolizing the troublesome times that we go through life. In some context, water stands for enemies that are coming against us and have to be overcome. But on the other hand, when it flows gently, it sustains life, it refreshes the thirsty tongue, and even gives joy to an entire city. In both the Old and New Testaments, we find the water sometimes symbolizes the spiritual refreshing that comes from the salvation of God that he's made available and offers humankind through his son. Twice in Jeremiah, God is metaphorically identified as the spring of living water. Y'all remember in Exodus, as Moses is leading the people through the desert, and they were camped, and they didn't have water, and so the people complained, demanding water, and then I think this Moses is having a pastoral moment when he cries out to the Lord, what shall I do with these people? Can you see pastor doing that? I can. What should I do with these people? And the Lord said, and took Moses and some elders and brought them to the rock at Horeb, and said, strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Beautiful example of the practical, physical, illustrating the spiritual. And I say that because 1 Corinthians 10 tells us who this rock represents. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all drank the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Christ is the source of the living water. He is the river that makes glad in our lives, in the lives back then, and the lives in the future. In John 4, in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well, he speaks of his salvation as living water. Those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. A little bit further on in John in 7, we see Jesus at the temple on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration and remembrance of God's provision in the desert while they were wandering. Now, according to Jewish tradition, the water ceremonies were an important part of the celebration. On the last day of the, of the uh, festival, the priest would go to the Pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher, fill it with water, go back to the temple, and then he would pour it into a silver bowl next to the altar while accompanied by musicians and choirs. And as he's pouring out the water, he would pray to the Lord to send rain. In some rabbinic traditions, 
the water drawing of tabernacles is interpreted as a drawing of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is here at this, at this uh, particular festival. He had delayed going, had showed up about halfway through, but he was here at the last day. And it's significant that on a day that the water is an important symbol, Jesus declares something. And I have to take us back for a second, because I can't say this is true, but I like to imagine it this way. Imagine if these two events happen simultaneously. The priest has gotten the water, and he's pouring it out, pouring it out in the silver bowl next to the altar. Worship team is playing back there. You know, everyone's worshiping, the whole congregation is worshiping. Priest is praying at the same time, asking God for more of his living, providing rain for them. And in the middle of all this, a voice cuts through the mix. Heard above all, a voice with great authority. And he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, just as scripture says, from that one's innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Can you imagine the impact? I feel it when I say it. Can you imagine the impact on the congregation as they're worshiping during this ceremony and the voice of God is heard in the middle of it? This is the river that makes glad the city of God. Now, when I think of the city of God, I was thinking of the old, the present, and the new. So we have to go back to Jerusalem. And I'm thinking, in some ways, the psalm doesn't really fit Jerusalem, but it does. City of God, well, Jerusalem, it is his holy habitation because the glory of God filled the temple and was in the temple, at least till about 575, 600 BC when his glory left the temple because of the sins of the people. But it was his holy habitation. There is no river in Jerusalem. No, they got their water from uh, a spring through a tunnel that Hezekiah dug. And uh, that's where they got their water. The river was a long ways away. Jordan River is 18 miles east, northeast away from there. And yet, the citizens of the city could claim there is a river that makes glad our city of God. Because in faith, they knew that since God was in the midst, that they would certainly receive all that they needed from his hand, especially the still waters that refresh the soul and symbolize regeneration. They were a city on a hill, a beacon to the nations, a witness to and for God. That's the old Jerusalem. The present Jerusalem is different than what I'm thinking. As the Old Testament passes into the New Testament, the city is no longer a place. We are the city. The city of God is represented now by the New Testament church. We are his holy habitation, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by him. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of our city, and he's the head of the body. The river is the Holy Spirit, and as that river pours into us and keeps us continually filled, because we are never, we are, if we're saved, we're never emptied of it, but that river only stays fresh as there is an outlet for it, and that's where we are, a city on a hill, a beacon to the world, a statue of liberty, if you want, a witness to and for God. But then the ultimate culmination of the city of God will be the new Jerusalem as we have the old heavens and the old earth's pathway and we have new ones. 
the new Jerusalem will be his holy habitation. In fact, we will live in the very light of the glory of God. There's no, no, no need for any light, no sun, no moon. The Lord Jesus will be physically present. The river theme, including what we see in Psalm 46, finds its most, most spectacular fulfillment in the river that flows with the water of eternal life from the throne of God and the Lamb. Revelation 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of this river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The river in end times Jerusalem, as prophesied by Ezekiel, symbolized the life-giving power that flows from the Lord. This city needs no hill. I don't know if you've read the description of the New Jerusalem, but it's approximately a 1,364-mile cube, wide, long, and high. Now, that's 26 billion, if you do math, and I have a calculator, that's 26 billion cubic miles in this city. If it was on, placed in the middle of the United States, it would extend from the Appalachian Mountains to the Rocky Mountains from the Canadian border to Texas. That's how big it is in that sense. But what's really, really imposing is that sitting on the surface of the earth, it will tower 1,100 miles above the International Space Station to give you an idea just how it doesn't need a hill. This city is the ultimate witness to and for God. When God is in the midst of her, though, she shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. So it's not just any city. Okay? God is in the midst. And I'm speaking of us here also. He is, it's, it is, we are his holy habitation. This is what makes the city special. God is its provider and sustainer, the protector of it. And we shall not be moved. The city shall not be moved. Just like the mountains in verse 2 that are moved, and the nations totter in verse 6, we shall not be moved. And when the morning dawns, when light dispels darkness, we'll see that this is symbolic of salvation, newness, and hope. There is great joy in being in and of the city of God. The city can be at peace, even though, we go to verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, and he utters his voice, and the earth melts. That's quite something, isn't it? We'll talk about it again in a moment. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, Psalm 2 asks, while the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, and I would say and against his church, and against his word today. Why do they do that? They cannot stand the thought of anything being greater than them. That is the problem we fight each and every day. That is the problem the nations fight. That's why they rage against God. I think that when I sin, I am my small rage against God. And we need to be aware of that when that happens to us. More on verse 6 in a moment, as I said. But still, the city can be at peace in spite of what is happening here. Why? 
because the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. And here I choose the exalt definition of Selah. The Lord of hosts is with us. This is one of the, this is one of the Messiah's names. He is the supreme commander. I shouldn't talk with my hands when I'm holding water. He is the supreme commander of all the armies of heaven and all the nations and creatures of the earth. He is a present help. Why? Because he is with us. Again, a common thread in the Old Testament. God was always present with his people. In the desert, he was in the cloud or he was in the tabernacle. Afterwards, he was in the temple. It points to the name Emmanuel, God with us, which Isaiah announced uh, as the the, about the son of the virgin, and which the angel confirmed as the name of our Savior. He was with Moses in the desert. When Moses felt too inadequate and too scared to confront Pharaoh, the Lord assured him, I will be with you. He was with Joshua, and Joshua led God's people over the Jordan into the Promised Land. And we're familiar with these passages. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And in fact, in chapter 5, and I think Pastor, when he gets to doing his Joshua series, we'll talk about this in, in depth. We see the Lord of hosts appearing as the commander of the army of the Lord, saying, Now I have come. He was with him. And Joshua worshipped him. Picture this future scene uh, from the book of Revelation, and I've condensed it a little bit, again, for time purposes. He is called faithful and true, the word of God, king of kings and lord of lords, and he's leading the armies of heaven. In the present, Paul phrases this entirely differently, and we can really cling to this also. Paul asked in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Lord is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. In Christ, the comfort of God being with us reaches an entirely new level as his spirit lives within us. Hebrews 13 says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can, Dan, what can man do to me? Now, with this truth in our hearts, we don't have to fear mighty armies or fierce nations or bad storms that may march against us. You know, this, this is the comfort for those of the city. He is our refuge and strength because he is with us. He is in the middle of us, in our midst. He is our fortress and commands all of heaven's forces. So what do we do? Well, let us behold his works. Psalm 66, 5 says, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. And we're going to look at some of those. The last section really pulls together what God has done. Okay, he has sovereignty over all. The Lord does not just direct the outcome of war. 
he is actually can defeat war himself and make that, those battles become completely obsolete. From Micah and from Isaiah, he shall judge between many peoples, and we've heard portions of the scripture before, and shall decide disputes for strong nations and far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Clearly, Psalm 46 has strong prophetic end times expressions as we see God not simply repairing and restoring and putting patches on the current physical universe in the earth, but he's creating an entirely new heavens and earth. All the old passes away, all is made new. All is made new. And we've kind of heard this in a different way. Second Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In both cases, the old is corrupt and incompatible with the new. The two cannot coexist and must be created anew. And that is what is going to happen. So therefore, come and behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations, waste, horror on the earth. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. I brought verse 6 over here just for the earth melts part. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and scatters the, shatters the spear, and he burns the chariots with fire. I like what the prophet Joel says. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The very earth will melt. The earth becomes totally undone at the voice of God. This is part of that recreate, doing away with the old and bringing in the new. He has set a day in which the heaven and earth and its all very elements will be dissolved by fire. Peter tells us that in uh, chapter 3 of 2 Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? I like that. What sort of people ought you to be? in lies of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What a powerful, powerful verse when you think about it, looking ahead into the future, that we are waiting for this. Righteousness will dwell. And then God speaks. I have to believe that as God starts speaking, it's just quiet. Silence everywhere. People humble themselves. And then they will have to exalt him. Because God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I don't think he said it calmly like I did. I think it was a voice that just, again, cutting through the mix, clear. But one understanding of, of verse 10, in the context of the preceding passages, as in 6, 8, and 9, you know, this is not necessarily a call for silent worship. This is God commanding the wicked nations with a warning. And just kind of like take a second, read it in that context. 
In other words, he's saying, stop it. Cease and desist. I am God who will be exalted in victory. You stand no chance of winning. That is one understanding of that verse. Another understanding, it's more of the be at peace. This is the one that I cling to personally because I've depended on this. Is that in the context of the entire psalm, especially verses 1, 7, and 11, God says, be still and at peace. I am sovereign over all peoples and creation. I shall be exalted. In other words, relax, be still. Cease and desist your striving. I know what I'm doing. This is my plan. I cause all things to work. I know he didn't use this many words here. I cause all things to work for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. We must set our anxieties aside and be still, knowing that with God as our fortress, we don't need to, we need not, we should not, and we shall not fear. Again, an illustration of this, I, had, I keep on seeing Jesus all over the place, is Jesus says, peace I leave, you with, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, I do give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And I can see him doing that. Now believers, we have even more reason to be confidently still because our Savior has ascended to the throne of God. It's at his right hand. He's been given the name above every name, rules over all authorities, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess him as Lord. He is our Savior. Now following all the carnage in verses 6, 8, and 9, we declare once again, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He leads the armies of heaven. He is for us. He is our fortress. He is our refuge. And he is our strength, which brings us to the end of the story. I didn't put in conclusion because you all know that's not true. So it brings us to the end of the story. We may know the end of the story, but we're living in the middle of it. We're living in the middle of life and all this stuff that gets thrown at us, either in the news or from, from the people around, family, whoever, enemies, people driving down the street, not liking you. How then should we live? Again, that's when Peter said, what sort of people ought we to be in light of what we know and believe? Well, certainly, we need to trust in the Lord. We need to believe in and trust on his integrity, the strength and ability and certainty of God. Believe him. Take him at his word. Believe that everything he says is true. Trust in him, not yourself, not in somebody else, not in the things you've built, not in the money you've accumulated. Rely on God and his protection. To me, that relies on, it's kind of like the other side of the trust coin, the coin that says in God we trust. Turn to God and rely on him rather than on yourself at the end, or on your own strength in times of trouble. No matter what comes up, distress, sickness, which is going to happen to most of us, even to the end, uh, or weakness, rely on God. From that, as we can trust him and rely on him, 
we become a people of thanksgiving from the heart. Gratitude to God for all the benefits and gifts he's given us, for who he is and what he has given us. His loving kindness, his mercy, his protection, and his guidance. Mostly, even when you don't understand it, give thanks to God that his purposes will prevail. Finally, worship and praise the Lord. Express reverence for his nature, for his character, for his attributes, for his power. Express grateful praise for all he is, has done, does, and will do. And as we worship and praise him, peace and comfort, stillness, will flood our heart and life. Which leads me again to a question. Are you clinging to the simple gospel and relying on Jesus' strength? Are you saved? Do you trust in him, rely on him, thank him in spirit and truth for all things? Are you resting in his care? If yes, you can loudly proclaim, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. If not, now is the time. Saved or unsaved, if you're not doing those things previously, return to Christ. Be restored to Christ. Come to Christ, perhaps for the first time. Abide in Christ and be still, for our Lord is sovereign. Now, as I was closing prayer, this worship team would be coming up to uh, uh, lead us in, wasn't that that song again? A mighty fortress is our God. Now, when I hear this song or think about this song, I'm probably dating myself again, and uh, I think of Davy and Goliath. Anybody remember the little animated cartoon? Most of you are not advanced in age enough to remember this. But David and Davy and Goliath, YouTube them, they're there, uh, were a, a boy and his dog story. And the, song, the, the stories were always introduced with a mighty fortress is our God. And, there was, and it always started off with, I think there was some guys with big long trumpets playing the song, and that's how the, that's how the show started. And, and I was thinking of that, and I was thinking of the story that the music to a mighty fortress of our God did not come from a bar room. I've heard that story before. It was not a bar song that, that uh, Martin Luther took and said, hey, I like that. I'm going to use these words to it, though. It was he wrote the words, according to latest, the latest uh, studies. And uh, it was an important song for him. It is said, again, an apocryphal story, is that when he went to meet the Holy Roman Emperor to defend his so-called heresy and stand before him in a life or death issue on his stand for Christ, his stand against the church, that he and his entourage, when they walked in to this big hall where the Holy Roman Emperor is, this is the song they were all singing loudly and clearly. Imagine that. And this is a song you're going to sing now. And I think that when we leave here today, we should have that song in our heart, loudly proclaiming that our God is going before us. He is with us. He is our present help. Thank you.